Also, um, are we getting ready for spring? I never should have even asked that. We're way too far away, aren't we? Let me just whet your appetite with one thing. Uh, we're going to, this Lent, step into something that our church used to do in, our, in the early days all the time. Um, and we really just feel led to do this this year, uh, which is 24-7 prayer. Uh, so for the 40 days, starting Ash Wednesday, leading up to Easter, that 40-day period, uh, we're going to enter unbroken prayer as a church. What it will look like is we'll all sign up for our slot. Um, we want to do all the prayer in the prayer room. Uh, of course, you know, there's logistical things at night, being in the city, that we're going to take care of. Uh, everyone will be here uh, in a safe place with doors locked at night. We also, probably those late night uh, hours that people sign up for should be two or more people. Um, but anyway, I'm just a little commercial for that, putting that out there as something that we're going to step into. Okay, we're uh, in Mark's Gospel. And uh, we saw in, in, right out of the gates, Jesus begins uh, he, with, with this whole proclaiming the, the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God are synonymous. The gospel, according to Jesus, is the kingdom of heaven. So therefore you have to ask, because that's kind of an abstract phrase, what is the kingdom of heaven? And we've, we've seen now that the kingdom of heaven is not political, it's not an emperor bringing an empire, it's not president, politicians. Uh, it can impact that. Um, it's also not social, it's not a great leader calling for world, world peace or bringing a plan of social action. It's not religious. Uh, in fact, we're going to see today how the kingdom of heaven frustrates organized religion and religious people. The best way for, for me to explain the kingdom of heaven succinctly is to just use this term, new creation. And it's coming to us through Jesus. Think about those words when he says, behold, I am making all things new. It's God in Christ putting the world to rights. And I want us to know, too, that this new creation that Jesus is unleashing, it's not just a Band-Aid uh, on a wound. It isn't interested in just treating symptoms or pre prescribing a new set of behaviors. When the kingdom of heaven breaks in, it's going to go for the jugular. So in a person's life, when it breaks in, it's going to go right to the heart. It's, it's, it's essentially open-heart surgery. It's God ripping out, out our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And this new heart, then, leads to a new life, producing a new humanity. And new creation, it doesn't stop uh, with, with a new me or just a new you, uh, but it's, it's something that is cosmic. So, for instance, I think Isaiah 58 captures the cosmic nature of what God uh, is going to do in his king and kingdom and his people the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your need in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. That is the description of Eden. 
Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repair of the broken walls, restore of streets with dwellings. So the kingdom of heaven, it's going to break into cities and neighborhoods and schools, governments, economies, all repairing, being restored. Tribes, cultures, races are going to be reconciled. The desert is going to bloom and flower. All creation, as the Psalms say, are going to sing and dance. That's why we say the most exciting thing going on in Grand Rapids right now, and in our country, and in the entire world, is the kingdom of heaven. And so let's uh, turn our Bibles to our text today, Mark chapter 2. It's a long one. I have no way of teaching it. So I I realized early in the game that I'm going to give you a framework instead so that you can go home and study this text this week. Let's stand for the reading of God, Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And by the way, a Pharisee fasted two days a week. No food, two days. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour the new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said, look, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Which, by the way, there's nothing in uh, the law of Moses that says you cannot do this. Jesus answered, "Have, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God. He ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he took that bread and gave it to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That is a bombshell. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So just imagine this right now because synagogues are just like this. They're places of worship done in the round. Um, So they're watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, come up here in front of everybody. And then Jesus looked at them and asked them, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they just stared at him. And he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians 
That'd be the equivalent of red state and blue state getting together and plotting on how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Mark's gospel is is presenting to us Jesus. And today we're going to see Jesus through the lens of fasting and Sabbath, but probably even more who Jesus is in relation to a group of people called the Pharisees. Again, I I don't have time to go through all this, as I already stated. Um, I'm just going to provide a framework for you uh, to hopefully you can study this in greater detail this week. One of the things I hope you can see that's going on by now, we're barely uh, three chapters into Mark's gospel, and there's a massive collision taking place. And it's a collision between Jesus and who? The religious people of his day. It's religious people who hate Jesus. It's religious people who want to kill Jesus. I mean, the Pharisees are all over this text. So I I think we should talk about the Pharisees because they've already shown up a lot in Mark's gospel. They're going to continue to show up in Mark's gospel. And I think the Pharisees actually might be uh, one of the most misunderstood entities in the Bible. Everybody just, when they think Pharisee, uh, they think of religious people who are part of the religious establishment, uh, who have these positions. And uh, let, me, let me just start with this, with a Pharisee. A Pharisee is not a position. It's not a title. Being a Pharisee is not a profession. It's not a vocation. A Pharisee is simply someone who holds to, to, to some deep convictions about who God is and who God's people are to be in the world for the world. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember Francis Schaeffer uh, and, and, and the big question that he, he, he presented to the church in the 60s and the 70s. Um, he said, how then should we then live as Christians? Uh, Pharisees are consumed with that question. How then should we live? And they're asking that question in light of their reality. And their reality starts with with this trauma that as God's chosen people, that God actually exiled them. And he was still allowing them to live as exiles in their own land under Rome. And then knowing why God did that. See, the Pharisee concluded that the reason why we have been exiled and why we are still living in this state of exile is for one simple reason. We were not faithful to God. We didn't walk as a people wholehearted with God. We didn't walk out God's instruction, his Torah, This is why God exiled us. So how then should we live in light of that reality? We are to be wholehearted and faithful to God. And then when you add to this, they're also dealing with the reality of Hellenism. And we've talked about Hellenism before, but Hellenism is essentially a worldview that's centered on the human ego. 
It's a worldview that reduces uh, life to climbing the ladder, making it to the top, getting power, making money, being the best, prettiest, richest, smartest. I'll keep going here. Hellenism is a worldview that caters to the strong, it celebrates the successful, it elevates the celebrity, and in the end it produces a culture that's shallow, materialistic, consumeristic, narcissistic, and self-indulgent. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Well, that's because Western civilization is founded on Hellenism. And Christianity, when it entered Western civilization, redeemed it. But now as we push God out of Western civilization, we're descending right back into it. So hundreds of years, though, before Jesus already, Hellenism is flooding the Jewish world. It's brought first by the Greeks, then the Romans. And, and it came through just these world-class cities with their stadiums and theaters, shopping malls, spas, Greco-Roman entertainment, sex, strip clubs, sports, uh, restaurants, all that indulgent life. And this is what the Pharisees are birthed out of. They are a response to that, asking the question, as this is flooding into our world, how then should we live? And so Pharisees develop these deep convictions. We are called to be a holy people. Holy means to be set apart. It means to separate. In fact, that's what Pharisee literally means. They are the separate ones. Um, that's how we are to be true to God, how we are to be faithful, how we are to be distinct from the world that is around us. And so this, this whole thing of Pharisees, it literally became a movement. And we're talking now before the time of Christ already. Um, and then uh, part of the story, too, is that their resistance to this Hellenistic way of life became a threat, uh, first to the ruling Greeks, then to the ruling Romans. I'll give you just a few in, uh, examples of this. Uh, Antichus Epiphanes uh, really tried to stamp out this whole movement of, of, of Pharisaism. Uh, he enacted the death penalty on anyone who just was caught reading their Bible uh, or practiced circumcision or uh, went to synagogue on Sabbath or celebrated the Passover. You're put to death. Then later, uh, another ruler, Alexander Janus, and this is just one generation before Jesus, uh, he became so frustrated with this movement, uh, uh, this Pharisee movement, that he invited 800 leading Pharisees and their families to his palace to wine and dine them. And listen to what the historian Josephus, Josephus is writing a hist history just a generation after Jesus. He says, as he was feasting with his concubines, in the sight of all the city, he ordered about 800 Pharisees to be crucified and while they were living still, he ordered the throats of their children and wives to be cut before their very eyes. This is the kind of world that Jesus is born into. Now you might think as, as a result of, uh, of these kind of um, persecutions that the Pharisee would die, die out, but it didn't happen. Instead, they emerged as a force. And contrary to maybe what you've been taught about the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees are not fanatics. The fanatics amongst the Jews are the zealots. In fact, politically speaking, Pharisees are pacifists. 
They promote nonviolence. The three most impassioned pursuits of their life were fasting, prayer, and social justice. Theologically, we think the Pharisees were the traditionalists. No, we confuse the, the, the Pharisees with the Sadducees. The Sadducees are, are the traditionalists. The Pharisees are actually, theologically, the progressives. It's the Sadducees uh, who, who have the rank. They're the ones who have the title. They're the ones that have the position. They're the ones who run the temple. It's the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, who are the priests, the popes, the cardinals of their day. And they're known by their uniform, their long robe. The Pharisees are primarily middle-class people working blue-collar jobs. Many of them live in Galilee. And while they worship in the temple, because God prescribed that, they also form these local expressions of worship that we call synagogues. Now listen to what Josephus says about the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees were the most respected group among the Jews and the most influential Everyone admired, respected, and held them in highest regard because of their wholehearted devotion to God and the good deeds that they did to humanity. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee from a Pharisee family. In fact, he never stopped being a Pharisee because at the end of his life, when he's on trial, he said, I am a Pharisee. Not I was a Pharisee, I am a Pharisee. But we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see story after story where you see this collision between Jesus and the Pharisees. And not only that, but so many of these stories have the Pharisees, the ultimate good people, and right alongside them in the story are the tax collectors, prostitutes, the bad people. We saw it last week. Jesus is eating with Sinners, and who comes along and, and complains? It's the Pharisees. Or how about the time when Jesus is, is having a meal with, with, with a Pharisee? And a sinner comes in and anoints Jesus' feet. I mean, stories are all over the place. Uh, Jesus with sinners, the bad people, and then the Pharisees being right there. It begs this question. Who is drawn to Jesus? Who is repulsed by Jesus? I mean, just a quick reading of the Gospels, you see how Jesus is, is almost this magnetic force drawing social outcasts and moral outsiders and traitors and prodigals. And all the while, maybe just as shocking, is the response of the good people. They're infuriated with Jesus. They're repulsed by Jesus. And you get to our verse today, the last verse we read, they want to kill him. And still, maybe even more shocking than that, who's Jesus drawn to? Who's Jesus repulsed by? I mean, think about Jesus uh, on his way to Jerusalem when he's... He's literally going to be hanging on, on a cross in less than a week, and he's, he, he's passing through Jericho, and he seeks out the most 
hated man in that town, the town's biggest sinner, Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus, like this little kid, gets down from that tree and just... I can promise you that if Jesus walked in this room right now, his heart would just so gravitate to the most messed up person in this room right now. And here's the deal. We can't just gloss over this. This needs to mess with us. Because these realities get to the core of Jesus and his life and his message and his mission like he said last week, I did not come to call the righteous, the good people. I came to this world to call sinners. And I think most of us, maybe all of us in this room right now, know what a dangerous thing it is to be a sinner. <laughs> we do. But how many of us right now understand what a dangerous thing it is to be a good person, a religious person? Now, what do I mean by religious? Because some of you are thinking, didn't Jesus come to the world to start a new religion? <laughs> no. He came to do away with religion. But what I mean by, by, by religious uh, is, let's just get to the crux of it, to the core of it. We're, we're, we're talking about the heart. It's, it's a heart attitude. It, a, a religious heart is when, when everything I do for God or in the name of God, it's, it's really just at the end of the day about me. It's when I subtly start to use God for my ends. When I use my goodness, my spirituality to pr promote myself, exalt myself. So for the Pharisee, those three things, fasting, prayer, and social justice, uh, they they, they did these things to promote themselves, to make themselves uh, think that they were the good people so they could break the world into the good people and the bad people. So the problem, as we look at Sabbath and fasting, the problem isn't fasting or Sabbath. Just like it's not prayer or giving to the poor, but it's the heart attitude that a person can do these things. It's getting down to that all-important question. Why? Why do you fast? Why do you keep Sabbath? This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, he's citing those three tenets of being a Pharisee he says, don't do it like the Pharisees, to promote yourself, to exalt yourself. Or how about when Jesus even tells this parable, bringing these two groups together. Uh, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. One a good person, one a bad person. And we could look at those two people and, and they would look identical to us. We wouldn't even know the difference, but God sees their heart. And Jesus said the Pharisee prayed to God, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. I fast, I pray, I give my money to the poor. And then Jesus says, but that other man, the sinner... 
He couldn't even look up to heaven. All he could do is beat his breast and say, God, God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the moment we forget that we are sinners saved by grace, we stand in danger of sliding down a slippery slope of trusting our own goodness, becoming our own saviors, becoming confident that that we can somehow get God's approval and God's acceptance. And all of this really ends up leading to the worst sin of all, at least in God's eyes, and that is pride. That's why we've stepped into some stuff that, in my opinion, is pretty scary. N.T. Wright says this. He says, if we believe that we have become acceptable to God on our own accord or through our own strength, we've missed him. Christianity is a relationship with a God whose heart is drawn towards the sinful, the broken, the outcast, and the excluded. God sides with sinners. God eats with them, warning those of us who are religious that we stand in danger. It's because religion and Jesus could not be more opposite. Religion attracts good people. Jesus attracts sinners. And when you and I start to think that we are acceptable to God because of our goodness and religious devotion, we are so far from the gospel, we are a Pharisee. When we start to break the world down into good people and bad people and think that we're better than other people, as Jesus would say, we are in danger of hell itself. And this is why Jesus said, as good as you are, Pharisee, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. So what this all comes down to is, where's your heart? Where's my heart? And only God really knows. And this is the jugular that God in Christ is going for. He wants our heart. Now I know we haven't even talked about fasting and Sabbath. Um, These are two amazing practices. Both fasting and Sabbath are instructed by God and they're practiced by Jesus. (laughs) I've heard Christians use these verses right here to say that Jesus is doing away with fasting. He's doing away with the Sabbath. (laughs) Listen, fasting and Sabbath aren't the problem. Religion is. It's what this religious heart can, can, can do with these precious practices. Just like what a religious heart can do with, with obeying God's law and with prayer and giving and worship and serving and living life on mission. I mean, let's take fasting, for instance. I mean, if, if you read about fasting in the Bible and, and when it happens the most often, it's usually connected with sackcloth and ashes because people are repenting of their sin. But when I was first introduced to fasting, uh, this was years ago, it was really a fasting done to obtain this spiritual power. It was, it, it was to reach these spiritual heights that were unknown to other people. It was to leverage God. It's like, God, you see what I'm doing. If I do this and give up this, then you're going to do this and give me this. And I just realized that that kind of fasting did not produce good fruit in my life. 
But surprise, surprise, I, I'm in a Michigan group of just, it's a text thread. A um, bunch of guys that uh, love Michigan football, Michigan basketball. I don't know why I'm, like, I'm kind of a little bit ashamed about that. I mean, <laughs> especially just because there's a, there's a lot of action that goes on, way too much time. So because of that, one of the guys challenged the thread to join him on a two-day fast. Fasting from food, fasting from all screens, TV, social media, news, all of it. And many of us joined them. That experience did not exalt me. I was sick, so I didn't even have my work to distract me. I was at home. I was humbled. I was humiliated. Because I forget about how hard it is to not eat food. I know, I know that's a relative statement. Um, but by the second day, I just felt like, almost like I was having an out-of-the-body experience where there was a self looking at myself. I didn't like what I saw. I didn't like the things I craved. I didn't like the things that... I felt like I needed, I, I saw a lot of sin. I saw a lot of idols in my life. And the cool thing about this fast, and as, as these things were exposed, um, it was happening with other people too. We just started confessing our sins to each other. That fast produced great fruit in my life. And you could, you, you could take the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I mean where that one's about prayer, but you could make that about anything. You could make that about fasting. You could make it about serving, giving, uh, take fasting. Two men, men entered a fast, and afterward, one looked around and said, God, I just thank you that I'm not like everybody else. I fast, I pray, I give. But the other guy, when he fasted and it came to an end, all he could do couldn't even look up to heaven. God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the problem isn't fasting. It's the heart motivation. Same with Sabbath. Sabbath is not humanity's idea. God made Sabbath. God fashioned it. God burned Sabbath in the created order. Sabbath already is, is, is part of, of God's rhythm that he placed in Eden. Listen to what uh, Genesis says as creation is ending in, in Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast glory. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested. He ceased from the work. And then God blessed the seventh day. He blessed it. It's the first thing he blessed in terms of days. And he made it holy. He set it apart. Because on it he rested from all work of creating, creating all that he 
had done. So Sabbath is, is part of creation. It's what makes uh, this paradise that God made a paradise. It's, it's what makes a good world good. Without Sabbath, Eden would be less than good. So then you go later in the story in Exodus, and when God establishes a people and he redeems them, and he calls them by name, and he says, you're mine, and he becomes a husband to them, and Israel became God's partner, and God said, you're a kingdom of priests, you're, you're to be a light to the nations. It's no wonder then when God does this that he instructs Sabbath to be a part of the rhythm of God's people. And this happens even before God gives them uh, the law, the Ten Commandments, because in Exodus 16, uh, God rained down manna for six days, but not the seventh day. They were to collect on the sixth day enough for the seventh day so that they could rest on the seventh day. Then you come to Exodus 20, uh, where God gives the Ten Commandments. Which, by the way, there's context here. They're giving on on their marriage day, on their wedding day, when God came down on Sinai like a husband and Israel approached Sinai like a bride. And so those Ten Commandments that God gave, those, those aren't just laws, those are wedding vows. And so when God starts it off by saying, you are to have no, no other gods before me, that's God saying, you, you are to have no other lovers. God even says, no graven images. I don't even want any pictures of other lovers. And then he says, I want you to keep the Sabbath. Six days. You go about your work, build things, make things, create things, develop things. But on the seventh day, that's our day. That's date day. You get rid of all distractions, no work, screens, or any of that. Just you and me. And then when you get to Exodus 31, verse 13, I want you to see this. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign. What comes after the wedding vows? The ring. And here it is. The wedding ring that Israel wore, that they were in marriage to God, was Sabbath. And Sabbath is a day that God set apart for rest so that we could cease from doing for the purpose of restoration. So when Jesus says to this man, stretch out your hand, <laughs> this is what God intended for Sabbath. But see, the Pharisees, with their religious hearts, their obsession with appearances and performance, came up with 39 specific rules attached to the Sabbath, one being that you couldn't pick grain. And see, very early then, it, uh, the Pharisees are just taking something that God gave that was intended to bring life, and instead they are bringing death to the Sabbath. Do you practice Sabbath? Why not? See, our problem is no longer a religious problem where we keep it and we're applying all this legality to it. Our problem is a worldly problem. 
we become Hellenists. We're so obsessed with climbing the ladder, making it to the top, getting power, making money, being the best, prettiest, richest, smartest, being consumed with our shallow, materialistic, consumeristic, narcissistic, self-indulgent lives. We don't do Sabbath. But here's one thing I want you to see. While religion and worldliness couldn't look more different from the outside, they are actually the same on the inside. Because a religious person and a worldly, worldly position person, they're both defined by their doing, by their performing, by getting things done, by their work, by their producing. And both a religious person and a worldly person believe the more that I do, the more that I accomplish, the more I am. Both find their identity, their purpose, their significance in their work, in their performance, in their accomplishments. This is why the fast had such a profound impact on my life. Do you know right now, who you are when you aren't doing anything. When you're not making money, when you're not producing something, when you're not competing, when you're not completing a project, do you even know who you are? Do you know who you are when you're not accomplishing things for God? What does it say about us that we can't cease? That we can't be still? We can't even live with silence anymore. What does it say about us that we can't say no to our work, to making money? Where we can't say, one, say yes to one day where we cease from it all. It says that we're defined by our work. We're defined by our money. We're defined by our accomplishments. We're defined by other people's expectations. We're, we're, we're defined by all these other things that we live for that we can't turn off. Are you in need of rest? And I'm not talking right now like leisure or a vacation um, or even just you need physical rest. I, I, I'm saying, are you in need of deep, deep rest for your soul? Rest from worry. Rest from stress. Rest from trying to care for everything. Rest from taking yourself so doggone seriously. Rest from the heavy burden that you're carrying right now. Rest from always trying to prove yourself. Rest from trying to assure to yourself and to other people that you're someone significant. Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. That's what real rest is. Sabbath means deep, deep rest. Sabbath is a synonym for shalom. That's why to this day, on Sabbath day, Jewish people greet each other, Shabbat Shalom. And Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of that deep, deep rest. And what is that rest? I mean, think about in Genesis when God, it says God rested. Did God get tired? No. His work is done. 
And he can look at his finished work and be utterly satisfied in it and say, that is really good. That's deep rest. Can you right now look at your life and your work in the same way God looks at his? And this is precisely why God doesn't come and bring us religion so that we can somehow earn our way to God and prove our way to God. Instead, God came to us. The bridegroom came and lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And his last words on the cross, it is finished. I did it. I completed it. Which means when that comes into our heart, we no longer have to live to prove ourselves. Because Jesus did it. And Jesus, like at creation, he is utterly, utterly satisfied with his work. And his work causes God to be utterly satisfied in us. Do you know that? In the movie Chariots of Fire, in fact, this is the only movie I know that actually deals with the issue of the Sabbath. It's actually a true story about Harold Abrams and Eric Little, both who are trying to win the gold medal in the 100-yard dash. And you see Harold Abrams uh, right before uh, he's going to run that great race. He's in the training room just minutes before he's going to go out on the track. And he says, I have 10 seconds to prove the reason for my whole existence. In other words, well, that's how long it takes to run the 100-yard the, the, the dash, about 10 seconds. And he says, this, this race is going to completely determine everything that I am. Trying to prove himself. And we can all do it. We can try to prove ourselves uh, through, through a race. We can do it through making money. We can do it by trying to be popular uh, through a sport that we play. Uh, there are so many different ways, things in our life that we can look at that, that we're, we're just like striving, proving the reason for why we exist. Futile. Then you have Eric Little. He actually gets disqualified for, he's supposed to win the 100-yard dash, the Olympic medal, but gets disqualified because he won't run on Sunday. <laughs> Sabbath is important to him. He can lay it down. And there's a part in the movie before this where, where his sister comes to him uh, because one of the callings in Eric Little's life was to be a missionary to China, and his sister think he's gotten so caught up with, with racing and winning gold medals, she confronts him, and he looks at her and he says, Sister, listen, I know my purpose. God made me for China, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. We can run, we can work, we can do ministry for two totally different reasons. Do you know his rest, his shalom? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And how do we come to Jesus and get that rest? I'm going to say this first off. 
Sabbath is a great place to start. And I purposely don't want to spell out all the applications of what Sabbath should be. I want you to go home. I want you to figure out what it means to have Sabbath, where you cease from work, from distractions. The greatest thing that stands in the way of us becoming disciples are all the distractions. But even more to experience the rest of God, we just simply need to come to him, surrender our whole life to him. Because we can have the riches of the world. We can achieve the American dream. We can be blessed with the good life. But until we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we will never know rest. And on the contrary, you could have nothing right now in terms of the world. But if you have Jesus, you have deep rest. Augustine said it so well. God made us for himself and our souls are restless until they rest in him. Listen to him. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the rest. Come to him. Place your life in him. God, this morning, I pray that there would be repentance in this place. Whether it's worldliness, whether it's religion, God, may we repent. And God, may we find our way back to you, Jesus, where we trust you with all that we are. In Jesus' name.